Today, uh, my message in the series is called Kingdom Finance. Kingdom Finance. And I, I love that Jesus, amongst many things he teaches on in this Sermon on the Mount, doesn't shy away from speaking about money. In fact, I love that the Bible as a whole doesn't shy away from speaking about money. You may or may not know this, but there's actually more than 2,000 verses in the Bible that deal with the subject of money. And, uh, and Jesus speaks to it in this passage in a powerful way. It's important for you and I because, you know, I, I, I've made a choice, as many have in this room, to follow Jesus. And when I make the choice to follow Jesus, you know, that choice affects every area of my life, doesn't it? It affects my relationships, it, it, it affects my emotional well-being, it, it affects how I see the world, it affects how I see eternity. Certainly, it must affect how I see my finance. In fact, how can I call him Lord if he's not Lord of my finances, <laughs> right? He's, you know, I've often heard it said, he's kind of Lord of all or not at all. That's really how Lordship works, right? So, you know, a few topics affect us on a more regular basis than the topic of money. That's why it's one of the things that's important for the church to speak to. It affects us on a regular basis. I think it's probably fair to say that few topics divide and damage relationships more than money. Goodness, I wonder how many friendships, how many partnerships, how many marriages have been damaged or even ended uh, on subjects of money. And... Uh, I think perhaps there are few topics, few things in life that have more potential to separate me or draw me away from my heavenly father more than money can, right? When money gets into my heart, when money gets mixed up in my motives, when I, I lose a kingdom perspective of money, it has great potential to lure me away from my heavenly father. So it's an important subject for us to speak to in the context of this, this series and several passages in what we call these days the Sermon on the Mount, these several chapters, deal with money specifically. I'm going I'm to tackle a few of them today. And uh, what I love is that, as with everything about this particular sermon Jesus teaches, what he teaches about money is upside down to the way that the world thinks. And he teaches, what he teaches turns conventional financial wisdom on its head. We're going to be reading today from a few passages in Matthew chapter 6. If you've got your Bibles, you're welcome to join us there in Matthew 6. And we're going to look at three principles in the time that I have today, three principles of kingdom finance. We're going to look at kingdom rewards, kingdom priorities, and kingdom perspective. Kingdom rewards, kingdom priorities and kingdom perspective. But first I want to read from Matthew 6 as we look at what kingdom rewards are all about. It says in Matthew chapter 6 verse 1, Jesus speaking here. He says, "Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven." So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. I want to talk to you about kingdom rewards, which is what I think these first four verses are all about. Kingdom rewards. You know, it's a sobering reality to consider the fact that I could do the right thing for the wrong reason and miss out on eternal reward. 
Isn't that a big thought? I can do the right thing. In fact, Jesus goes on after this passage. He, he leads out with giving, but he goes on to talk about prayer and fasting as well. And in each instance, he's making essentially the very same point. When you pray, when you fast, when you give, don't do it like the hypocrites. In those days, by the way, hypocrite didn't have a religious tone about it. Jesus was adopting, you know, from the Broadway equivalent of the day, the Greek theater. The hypocrite was a person who wore a mask, who played a part in a play. So the point that Jesus is making here is some people give like they're playing a part, pray like they're playing a part. They, they fast as a show, but it's not real. It's, it's a mask. And so Jesus says, when you, when you give, don't give like the hypocrites do. He says, he says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. He says later, he says, don't give as the hypocrites do to be honored by others. Jesus is getting at what it is that we want as a reward for our right doing in life. I can do the right thing for the wrong reason and miss out on eternal reward because motive matters. Motive matters. You might have received a compliment but it was clear to you that the motive was not what it could have been, right? Have you ever given or received a gift with an ulterior motive attached, right? We know even in our earthly relationships that it's not just about what we do, it's also about why we do it. And that's the point that God's making here is we could go through life thinking we're doing all the right things. Well, I'm giving, I'm fasting, and I'm praying, and God is saying here, no, no, wait a minute, your motive matters. So he wants us to consider why we do what we do. So he says in verse 1 and 2, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Key phrase. Why were they giving in front of others? Well, to be seen was the essence of that. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. We're going to come back to that thought in a minute, but that's a big statement that should cause us to pause and take notice of what Jesus is saying. Verse 2, he says, when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets. <laughs> in other words, don't make a big show out of it. Well, you got to make sure that people know, that people see. So it says, the hypocrites do, to be honored by others. There it is again. It's the, the intention, the motive was to be seen, to be honored. And not by God, but by others. So important for us to consider our motive. So if the scripture here is saying, we will receive no reward from our heavenly father, why is that? It's because it says here, at the end of verse 2, it says, Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. <clears throat> so it's not that they didn't receive a reward. It's that the reward they were really looking for was to be seen and to be honored. In other, in other words, perhaps a way of paraphrasing would be, they wanted the accolades and the affirmation. They wanted the attention of the crowd. And they got what they wanted. And as far as heaven's accountants are concerned... They received already their reward in full. Although they did something that may, with a right motive, have, in a sense, had an invoice waiting for them in eternity to be rewarded by their heavenly Father. Unfortunately, when they get there, that invoice is already going to have stamped on it, paid in full. Because what they wanted, they got. Next. Isn't that a scary thought? Paid in full, the Bible says. See, we live in a day where we very much value, I think, in our generation, instant gratification. Like waiting is the worst thing in the world, right? And how impatient we can be. Even, even fast food isn't fast enough, right, for our generation. So 
So, you know, the idea of focusing on rewards in eternity seems like the most upside down thing you could possibly suggest. Do, do something now and wait, not just till tomorrow or till next year, but potentially even. Not that God doesn't reward us in this life. He certainly does. But I think the greatest and certainly the most eternal rewards, we're going to see the other side of eternity. That's upside down thinking. One of the things I notice about this verse, that's subtle, by the way, is that Jesus assumes you will give. Anybody else notice that? He says it twice. He says it twice. When you give. Now, if this were like a little optional add-on, if this were, you know what I mean? You know how you have, when you study, you have like the core things that you have to take, and then you've got the extras, the elective subjects. No, giving, as far as Jesus considers, is core to us graduating, core to us living in following Him. This is not an elective subject, because Jesus says twice, when you give, when you give. He doesn't say if, if would give us an out, wouldn't it? But He says instead, when. So why is it that sometimes we live as though giving and generosity were an optional extra or were for somebody else, something we could dismiss ourselves of. Proverbs 19, 17 says, Whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord, and He will reward them for what they have done. Isn't that a beautiful thought? He who lends to the poor. Now, what's interesting is what the Bible's really saying is that it's like a loan, even when you give to the poor, because as far as God is concerned, He's going to repay you. Not the person that you gave to, not the person that you bless, who, who frankly, the very reason that you gave to them at all is they had no means to repay you, but the Lord does. And what's beautiful about this arrangement is that you lend to somebody with, perhaps naturally speaking, no prospect or no means of repaying you. And you might well in your heart have given with no strings attached, but the Lord, not to be outdone, promises you, I will repay you. And who do you think has the greater capacity to repay? Amen. The greater capacity to reward. I want my rewards from God. Anyone else? I don't want my rewards from people in this world. It's nice when people say nice things and do nice things. But that's not what we're living for. Praise God for encouraging a generous culture. Yes and amen to all of that. But my heart is not set on those things. I want my heart set on reward from Him. Who is more generous than the Lord? Amen. I wonder if we went out on the streets today. With something in each hand. In one hand, we had a $100 bill. And in the other hand, we had a, an envelope that was sealed. Nothing written on it. And we said to people, hey, I got, you got a choice of gift today. You can take this $100 or in this envelope is something from God. What do you think people are going to take? They're going for the $100, right? I wonder even in this room, let's get a little more honest. How many of you would say, just give me the 100 I know what that's worth. The fact is in that envelope, I mean... If it's truly from God, and this isn't just a game or some kind of trickery, it's truly from God. I mean, the sky's the limit. Could be a billion dollars for all we know, right? It might not even be monetary. It might be something worth more than money, right? It could be anything that's in that envelope. And yet something about us is so focused often on instant gratification or earthly things. And it shows us in some ways what a small view we have of God. That we would rather take something small and tangible than trust the heart of our Heavenly Father to bless us in ways we could hardly imagine. Matthew 10, 42, Jesus says, If anyone gives even a cup of water to these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. I was thinking about this this week and this, this scripture rocked me. This might be my favorite scripture in this whole message because I started to think, wait a second. 
God is saying here, if you want to understand how much I'm generous, how much I want to bless and reward you, let me tell you, you can't even give someone, a little one, a glass of water without me promising to reward you. Doesn't that give you some sense of the scope of the Father's heart? Of his generosity. Don't you think that, that the heavenly father who would say, don't, I didn't even miss you giving that kid a cup of water. How much everything that you and I do from right motive before him has potential for eternal reward. Imagine the, the rewards possible for a lifetime of kingdom living and generosity. It's beyond our imagination. So Jesus sets up this first principle of kingdom rewards. And then he teaches to fasting and he teaches to prayer. And then we're going to pick it up again in verse 19 of this passage for our second kingdom principle this morning, which is kingdom priorities. Kingdom priorities in Matthew 6 and verse 19. It says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These are some powerful thoughts, aren't they? First, we think about this in the context of kingdom rewards and the Father's heart for you and I. When we live rightly and we give from right motive. Well, then secondly, Jesus goes on to unpack what I would kind of summarize as kingdom priorities in these verses here. About laying up for ourselves treasures where? On earth, where moths and vermin and thieves destroy and steal, or in heaven, where they're safe. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I think you could read a scripture like this at a glance and maybe take some things from it that Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying when he teaches here on treasure, about treasures on earth, this is not some kind of heavenly executive order against savings accounts, right? Jesus isn't saying, you, you know, you got to spend everything, keep nothing. This is not what's, what's being taught here. It's a perspective thing that Jesus is doing. It's about priority. So in fact, in other passages of the Bible, we, we know this to be true because it teaches about a good person leaves an inheritance to their children's children, right? And that's not possible to do without us saving something. We can't live in everything completely hand to mouth and leave an inheritance. So there's something to be said for saving. What's Jesus actually saying here? It doesn't simply teach us against storing up treasures either. It directs us to store up treasures, but in heaven rather than on earth. That's the point here. The point is what's our priority. See, as I, as I was sort of thinking and praying on these scriptures this week, one of the things I wrote down was kingdom finance. At the end of the day, kingdom finance is about stewarding the temporal or the temporary for the sake of the eternal. Kingdom finance is about stewarding the temporal for the sake of the eternal. See, this passage would read really differently if the writer had stopped after verse 19. The principle, the takeaway would be different if all he said was, do not store up for yourselves treasure on earth where moths and vermin destroy and thieves break in and steal. End of story. Okay, we take a very different lesson from this. But what instead Jesus does and the writer records here is he, is he, he balances this with a second statement, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Where moths and vermin do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. See, it's a reminder of where we'll have the greatest return. And all of eternity 
to enjoy it. Isn't that a beautiful thought? You know, back in, in my 20s, I, I was interested in the stock market and shares investment. And so, you know, I would buy and sell different shares. And something I would sometimes do towards the end of a year is you know, kind of look back over investments. And some went well and others went badly. And that's the nature of investments. And, uh, but something that was often tempting to do was to look at my best investment. You know, which sometimes just the nature of risk and return was the one I was the least sure about, you know, or the one that spectacularly turned around. And then I would go down this mental path of thinking, well, man, I made 27% on that in three months, which annualized is. And then I imagine, what if I had to put all my money in that? Well, this is kind of what God's trying to do for you here. He's trying to give you a glimpse of the future where you see what investments turn out to have been the best return. And then he's winding you back to the present and saying, I'm not saying you can't do all different things, but trust me on where the best investment is. <laughs> You're going to look back later and wish uh, you had all your chips on. Do you know what I'm saying? When we look back, God's saying, hey, I can tell you where the greatest return will be. And not only for this life, but for all eternity, you'll get to enjoy it. He's giving you a sneak, a sneak preview of your eternal future. And what will be the greatest and most eternal reward? There's a really similar principle that the Apostle Paul teaches to uh, the young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy, his first letter to him, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. He's, he's coaching this young pastor and he says to him, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Isn't that the truth? Not to put their hope, he says, in wealth. By the way, you notice he's not saying not to have any possessions. He's, it's all about where your hope is. Not to put your hope in wealth, which, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good. That's a strong word, isn't it? He says command twice in this. Command them, he says, to do good, to be rich in good deeds and generous and willing to share in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. Sounds a little like Matthew 6 now, doesn't it? And then I love this phrase, my goodness, as a firm foundation for the coming age so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Oh, I love that thought. The life that is truly life. What, what the Apostle Paul is teaching Timothy and asking him to teach others in turn is, is where people ought to put their hope. He said, command them not to be arrogant and not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Isn't that the reality of it? Up and down and up and down. Where's our hope? Is our hope in wealth? Is our hope in our possessions? Is our hope in our ability to provide for ourselves? Or is our hope in God? You know, I think about, when I think about the uncertainty of wealth, I'm reminded of Matthew 6, our main scripture today, where Jesus says, hey, if your treasure's on earth, Moths can get it, vermin can get it, thieves can get it. But if, you're, if, you're, if your reward, if your treasure is in heaven, then the Lord himself safeguards it against all loss. I love that the scripture here is saying that, that it's God who provides richly all things for our enjoyment. Isn't that a beautiful thought too? So God's intention here is, is, is not to chastise you or to keep you without things. In fact, he, the Bible says He richly provides for us. Isn't that the truth? And He desires us to enjoy what He gives us. There's no shame and no guilt that needs to be attached to enjoying the things that God has provided for you. And yet, keep it in context. It's not where our hope is. It's not where our trust is. Amen? 
and it's not where our, our eternal reward is. So he's, he's, he wants you to have things. He just doesn't want things to have you. Isn't that all the world of difference? He wants you to have things, but he doesn't want things to have you. And maybe, I wasn't going to say this, but go off road here for a minute. As a father, maybe he looks at, and if things have you, wouldn't, as an earthly father, I would think, I want to be careful if my child is becoming precocious and spoiled and entitled and dependent on things and it's all mixed into their identity and whether I love them or not is dependent on whether I give them things. Now I'm conflicted as a dad because as much as I might want to give them things, I might be a bad father to give them what they want. Wow, isn't that a thought? Isn't that a thought? So it's in our interest as well to keep a clean line between having things and things having us. So God can entrust us with more without losing our hearts. See, there's a counterfeit life that people are willing to settle for. The scripture says here, if we do these things, we can lay hold of the life that is truly life. There's a counterfeit life that's selfish, that's materialistic, that's short term, and that's basically an empty version of life. But but Paul's desire for Timothy is that he would teach people to lay hold of real life. And I believe that being a giver is a part of that process. You know, I've discovered that being a giver, being faithful in my finances is not a budget issue. It's a heart issue. See, we easily lie to ourselves. I don't know if anyone else has ever done this or if it's just me. Uh, but we easily lie to ourselves and we tell ourselves that our giving is, is decided by our circumstances when really our giving is decided by our heart. And one of the reasons that we do that is when we, our conscience convicts us that our giving is not what it could or should be, it's much more comfortable to blame our circumstances than it is to search our heart, right? To say it's this or it's that, it's what's going on around me. And it's not to say we don't live in the real world. I understand all of that. But you know, the biggest key to your giving is not your circumstance. It's not your budget. It's not the world around you. Frankly, the biggest key to your giving is in your own heart. We read uh, Matthew 6.21 earlier where Jesus kind of leans into this thought about the connection of finances in our heart. And he says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, your finance and your treasure are traveling companions. They're basically handcuffed together. Where your finance goes, your heart goes. Where your heart goes, your finance goes. They travel together. That's how it works. And so I can't change the condition of my finances without changing the condition of my heart. It's a heart thing, right? It's a heart thing, a matter of priorities. And you can see this a thousand times in Scripture and other places later in this same sermon. Jesus says, don't worry like people without God do about what am I going to eat? What he says, seek first. See, it's priorities again. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. In the Old Testament, you know, in the, in the Ten Commandments, God says, have no other gods before me. Lowercase g, right? Little g gods, idols. No, no it's, it's priority. Nothing else before me. There was, in Hebrew culture, one of the, the offerings was called the first fruits offering. So literally at harvest time, they would take the very first and give it to God. And what was key about it wasn't even just the quantity, but that it was, it was first. It's about priority. You know, the tithe is like that. If you're not familiar with it, the tithe, word tithe literally means 10%. And it's a timeless scripture and principle taught in both the Old and the New Testament of bringing God our 10%. And you know what I've noticed about the tithe is it works when it's a priority. It works when it's a priority. If you've ever tried to tithe at the end, you've found out it's really hard. 
Because it's amazing how if everybody else, like if I do everything else, I pay my taxes, I pay my bills, I do all these things, I go out and eat, I get clothes. It's amazing how there's never 10% left. At the end, it's always like the dregs. It's like I'm tipping God basically at the end, right? And I'd say this with any condemnation. This is my own life experience though. But it's amazing how when I tithe and I put God first, how His blessing on my 90% goes further then my 100% without His blessing ever went. Isn't that the truth? I've learned that when I honor Him and I put Him first, I see His blessing in astounding ways. It's that sense of priority though. That's why it says in Malachi 3.10, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this. You know, it's the only instance in Scripture where God says we ought to test Him is in this very thing. Test me, He says, and see if I won't throw open the floodgates of heaven, pour out so much blessing, there will not be room enough to store it. You know, the reality is, is if every person who really called Liberty Church home, by the, and I'm really speaking to people who call church home. I, if you're a new or you're a visitor today, hey, go on your journey. You're welcome. No pressure. But if we put our roots down and we say this is our church home, I can tell you this for a fact. If every person who called Liberty Church home just tithed, just got this one revelation, we'd be living in abundance as a church, impacting our city and the nations and the generations like never before. And everybody's on a journey in this. So what's your next step? It's probably the question. For some, your next step might be giving at all, something, sometime, stepping out in faith. For some who give occasionally, your next step might be, I want to give regularly. You know, in, in New York, we can give online. 90% of our church actually give outside of Sunday. So those are people, by and large, who've decided, I'm going to set up, you can set up a recurring gift. Even if it's $20 a month, $50 a month, I take my next step. For some who've been giving more often, the next step is, I'm really going to tithe. And I'm going to test God and I'm going to see Him bless my life. And for some who've learned what it is to tithe and put God first in the finances, to lean into some of the things like what 2 Corinthians talks about, like, you know, the offering and feeling led to give and, you know, being a blessing in different situations. That's not about what's mandated by God, but give as you've decided in your heart to give, as 2 Corinthians 9 puts it. I guess at the end of the day, if God is my king, it should be reflected in my priorities. Isn't that right? If I had a staff member who couldn't align with my priorities, would I give them more? Right? It just stands to reason that God as our king is looking for our heart to align with his heart in order that we could trust him or he could trust us with more. Let me, let me give you number three, kingdom perspective. A kingdom perspective. So much you could teach from these scriptures. I'm going to skip ahead. It says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's kind of rich with thoughts, these last few verses that I want to speak to you about today. And I love that Jesus used the, uses a metaphor here of the eyes. Because really, giving a lot of giving is about how we see the world. Which is kind of the essence of what Jesus is getting to here is, not only do we need to keep our eye on kingdom rewards and maintain in our own hearts kingdom priorities, but we need to retain in the way that we see life and the world and even our own possessions, we need to retain a kingdom perspective. See, when we have the wrong perspective, it changes how we think, changes how we feel, changes how we act, right? When we have the right perspective, even on the very same circumstances, it changes how we think, changes how we feel, changes how we act. Isn't that the truth? 
So our perspective on life, regardless of the facts, our perspective on life has a huge impact. Now, I noticed something in those verses as I was reading the NIV translation. It's a little strange. It doesn't make sense. I didn't think at a first read. What does Jesus mean when he says, if your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be filled with light? Is he just talking about having good eyesight here? Is this what Jesus is saying? Then in the next verse, he says, if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. Now, this sits smack, smack bang in the middle of a whole string of Scripture about finance. So this isn't just a sudden detour, a bunny trail from Jesus. What's He actually saying? What I noticed in my, in my NIV Bible is there was an asterisk next to healthy and another next to unhealthy and a footnote at the bottom of the page. And what it said in the footnote was this. It says, note, uh, the Greek word for healthy implies generous. And next to the word unhealthy, the footnote says, the Greek word for unhealthy implies stingy. Well, this makes it interesting. So let's read the verse again with the Greek understanding. It would say, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are generous, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are stingy, your whole body will be full of darkness. You see, what Jesus is saying here is a healthy perspective is a generous perspective. An unhealthy perspective in life is a stingy perspective. Generosity fills our life with light. Stinginess fills our life with darkness. In fact, the message, a different modern translation of that same verse says, your eyes are the windows into your body. If you open your eyes wide in wonder and belief, your body fills up with light. If you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. <laughs> Isn't that great? I want to have generous eyes. I want to see the world, in other words, through a generous lens. You know, in photography, they have a type of lens called a fish eye lens. In fact, I think we've got a photo we can put up on the screen of images taken with a fish eye lens. And you see on the left is like a, a normal shot of the city. And toward the right is when that fish eye lens is in full effect. It, it actually, it almost sees the world bigger. Standing in the very same place, you capture more, you see more. And the image changes through the fish eye lens. But you know, in our natural vision, there's an opposite effect that some people suffer from called tunnel vision. And tunnel vision looks like this. Let's put up the other image. Tunnel vision takes the image and it gets smaller and smaller and smaller, as the name implies. We see almost as if through a tunnel. We miss out on so much that was there to be seen that a generous, a fish-eye view of the world, if you like, sees more, catches more light, and the tunnel vision loses more and more of what is there to be seen. Same scene, same situation, a different lens changes the experience of everything. You know, some of us have experienced what it is maybe before Christ or maybe in our journey of generosity to see the world with tunnel vision, stingy eyes. And Jesus is teaching us to open the eyes of our heart to see the world through generosity. Proverbs eleven twenty four says, One person gives freely yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly and yet comes to poverty. The message translation, same verse, says this, The world of the generous gets larger and larger. The world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. That's what generosity does to you and I. It gives us a larger world, amen, and a larger view of the world around us. I remember visiting Zimbabwe years ago when we started to partner in Southern Africa, and I was overwhelmed by the need, overwhelmed by the scale of the problems down there. And frankly, I got tunnel vision. 
my world started to cave in. God, what could we possibly do? Back in those days, we were just like a baby church. And I thought, well, hopefully some mega church is going to come in here and make a difference. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me from James. And, and he said, you know, if you know the good you ought to do and you don't do it, for you it's sin. And, you know, it could sound like a condemnation, but it wasn't to me at all. It was like a spur to action. Just do the good that you know you ought to do. Amen. And thankfully, by just being generous with what we had then, he's seen fit to trust us with more. And each year, generosity looks a little different to what last year's generosity looked like. By the way, generosity isn't just with our finances, it's with our time too. I know today after the service, we have our next steps. Today is step three, joining the team. Some of us could be generous with our time. We could be generous with our talents and find a place to give back to the body of Christ. I'm sure we'll remind you about that before the service is done today. But Let me just wrap up with a thought on that very last scripture that I read at the beginning. Matthew 6, verse 24. I'm going to read it from the Amplified Translation. It says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon, money, possessions, fame, status, or whatever is valued more than the Lord. Yeah, this scripture, in the NIV, they translate it money because people don't really understand what mammon is. It's not a common word. It's used four times in the Bible, three of them by Jesus. And really what, when Jesus speaks about mammon, he's not just talking about money. He's talking about the spirit that is often attached to money when money gets a hold of our life. It's something more. You know, there's an aspect of it perhaps that's to do with materialism and greed. There's a spirit that can be on money when we treat it the wrong way. When there's a spirit behind money. When, when mammon gets in your finances, you work for money instead of money working for you. When mammon gets in your finances, you don't have money. Money has you and it wears the pants. Amen. In all of your decision making. I want to I I live with the right master. The Bible says I can't serve God and serve money at the same time. So I'm going to get my priorities straight. I'm going to ensure he's king and Lord and retain an eternal perspective. As one of the worship team comes join me and I, and I get ready to pray. I just love this quote. I've quoted a few times in our church from Dave Olaking, who was the founder of Children's Cup that we partner with in, in Honduras and Swaziland these days. He said this. He said, one day all you'll have is what you've given to God. What a beautiful thought that is. Lay up for yourselves, Jesus said, treasure in heaven. Amen. How great is your reward when the Lord is the one who rewards you. I want to pray for you this morning because I just have a great sense that some of us need to be reminded of the Father's heart toward us. He's good. He loves you. He sees you. He knows your need. And I think, you know, if anything speaks to me of the Father's heart of generosity, it's that He would send His Son to die in our place and buy us back to eternal life, that we could be what the Bible calls co-heirs with Christ. In other words, perhaps His greatest act of generosity and Jesus' greatest act of selfless love was He gave His life, took on Himself the punishment that should have been ours, so that you and I could stand right alongside Jesus, brothers and sisters before the King spotless, seen by the Father. Talk about a generous lens, seen through the lens of Jesus, seen through the lens of His blood and His sacrifice for us. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Church Podcast. If you are in New York City or will be visiting the New York area soon, please be our guest on Sunday. For service times and locations, please visit libertychurchnyc.com.